0: Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I want to take a moment just to let you know a bit of what's happening in our community. And really, lots of things have been kicking off for the new ministry year. So be sure to visit our website, southviewchurch.com, and check out the various things going on. Coming up this Wednesday, September 21st, we have part two of our How to Read the Bible Discipleship Pathway. And don't worry, if you missed the first one, you're still welcome to join us. You can just walk in if you're unable to register. And this time of year is also a good time to get involved in the ministries of the church through serving. And at our services on the weekends, there are serve tables where you can get more information about areas to serve and where we have our most urgent needs. But you can also visit our website at southviewchurch.com/serve. And really, the best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. And you can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together.
1: Hello, friends. So glad we can be joined together. Uh, to worship our God in His presence. So glad you are here today, and for those joining in online, glad we can be uh, together in this place, as today we begin a new teaching series that we've called Letters from God. And this is our start of the study of the book in Scripture, the last book in Scripture, called Revelation. Revelation. Now, we're leaning into Revelation a lot in our ministries. Arlene, who is just up here, is leading a study in our women's groups midweek as well, and there's a great study guide they've got for that if you want to dig in deeper to that as well. We are starting Revelation Day, and we have a lot to cover, all right? Because it's Revelation, in which we read of locusts with the teeth of a lion coming from a bottomless pit. Or a beast with seven horns and seven heads rather than ten horns. Or the Antichrist or the red dragon. Or the mark of the beast, Armageddon, paradise. All of these are found in our biblical book of Revelation. That's why few books of the Bible create more interest, inspire more curiosity, and really even invoke more fear than this book. But what in the world does it all mean? Well, be encouraged. The biblical scholar, Dr. Wilfred Harrington, put it this way. The reader faced for the first time with the book of Revelation is understandably bewildered. So what do we know about this book? Well, we know Revelation is a letter written by a man named John to seven churches in western Asia Minor. That's present-day Turkey. And there's a a map here you can look at to get an idea out to the west there. That's where the seven churches are. And John couldn't visit these churches because he was imprisoned by the Romans on the Mediterranean island called Patmos. It was about 70 kilometers offshore. It's just there to the left. You can see down in the lower left there, the island of Patmos. So he wrote to these churches to encourage them, to exhort them, to bring them hope in the face of profound challenges that they were facing in life. Challenges that came largely, as we're going to see, from the Roman Empire. And it's smothering culture that pummeled and persecuted and wooed them towards emperor worship, pagan lifestyles that were against God, that were against anti-Christ. So let's come to this book, the last book in Scripture. Easy for you to find if you brought your Bible with you, and I would encourage you to bring it. Uh, If you have one, we come to the Word of God, friends. And I remind you, this is the Word of God. And we read in verse 1, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, gave Jesus, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Okay, let's just stop there. That word revelation is our English translation of an original Greek word, apocalypsis. Want to say that with me? Apocalypsis. Now, I imagine that you would know that, what English words we get from that Greek word, apocalypsis? We get apocalypse from it. And Revelation is the only book in Scripture that uses that Greek term. So the title of this book could rightly be called, in fact, in some translation, it is called the Apocalypse. So let me ask you, what images come to mind for you when you hear the word Apocalypse. I mean, I would say that for most of us, likely, it would be images of destruction or or famine or the end, death, darkness, terror, right? Those kind of images. I mean, those are the images and words that we mostly associate with the apocalypse. And and so we naturally think that this book, that is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, is therefore focused on destruction, famine. Famine. The end, death, darkness, terror, that is going to come with the end of all things. And so in light of that, when I was growing up in the church, our youth group would sing what was a Larry Norman worship song about this book in Christ's return that had these lyrics. Life was filled with guns and wars, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children die. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. Have a great week, kids. And, and, and so, studying this book of the Apocalypse, it has led many Christ followers to really wring their hands to say the ominous words, I think this might be the end times. And, and usually, what's interesting, usually that is expressed not with an expectancy of hope, but with fear, heaviness, anxiety, and really an expectation of destruction, So so let's consider, is that the response this book is supposed to bring from us? You know, what's interesting is that those dark and destructive images, they were not at all what apocalypse or apocalypsis meant in that ancient culture. Apocalypsis meant to reveal, to unveil. So really, an accurate translation of the opening words of this book would be the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Don't we want that? So just catch that. What this book is about, above all, as its opening words expressed, is the unveiling of Jesus and the unveiling of the plans of Jesus, written to a people who were in desperate need of hope. Which I think can be a clue for us as we go through this book. Because if our main response to this book is fear, hand-wringing, heaviness, we've likely misread the book. Because its purpose, even to its original audience, is to give hope and to unveil to us Jesus and his reign. Written to very discouraged believers living in a spiritual battleground against the empire of Rome. I mean, this book has warnings, certainly, without question it does. And we are going to see some of those warnings as we move into the opening seven letters addressed personally to those seven Asia Minor churches. But above all, this book leads us to hope, to Christ, the Lamb who sits enthroned as King. Okay, so with that in mind, let's come back to our text and let's read again, beginning in verse 1 For the time is near. So this was a book written, similar to most New Testament books, really to be read in its entirety in a worship service, kind of like this, by the churches scattered around the towns and cities of Asia Minor. And and that's why John writes in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And what's interesting as well, this is the only book in Scripture that expressly promises a blessing to those who read and hear and keep it. The only one. Okay, Clyde, that's all interesting, but we're focusing on that other phrase. The time is near. The time is near. Okay, so when's the world going to end? Is it going to be in our day? And what about the second coming of Christ? Is it really going to be as soon as some people say? And how does COVID fit into biblical prophecy? I mean, does it? And, and what about the military rise of Russia again, moving against Ukraine? Is there any biblical significance to that? And are these new vaccines that are coming out, are they the mark of the beast? And, and how do we avoid it? What, and what happens if you don't? And who do you think the Antichrist is? Now, for some of you, you might be wondering, what? <laughs> the Mark of the Beast, what is that? And all that stuff is in this book? That sounds more like a Stephen King novel or movie, doesn't it? And others of you might be thinking, well, it's about time we talked about all of this. Again, I don't think there's another book in the Bible that has been the subject of more curiosity, more confusion, and really, I think, more misinformation than this book of Revelation. And it really, it kind of seems that with all we've journeyed through in COVID, that's kind of only increased, wouldn't you say? In fact, I think if you want to sell a best-selling Christian book these days, you just need to put something about the end times on the cover. I mean, many have wondered and asked, I mean, is COVID, could it be one of the plagues of God's wrath that's spoken of in Revelation 6? Is it a sign of the end times? We're going to be looking at this in more depth in coming weeks. But when we ask kind of that kind of question about COVID, let's also right from the start remember, but wait a second. We've seen this all before, haven't we? we Just think back, glance back to the 14th century, the Black Plague. It killed 30 to 60% of the population of Europe. Or think about 1918, the Spanish flu, which was another coronavirus. It killed 50 to 100 million people worldwide. Okay, so we, right from the start, need to place COVID in a long line of plagues in history. And even so, we have warnings from many about this being the end times, And it certainly could be. But then we think, but okay, but we've heard this all before, haven't we? Can I prompt you to think back a bit to Y2K? (laughs) Even remember that? That transition into this new millennium, which brought out numerous books and articles about how Y2K fit in with the book of Revelation. And and typically including timelines and charts of how all the details fit together and and which present-day nations and leaders were the fulfillment of different prophecies in Revelation. Okay, just so you believe me on this, here is a book jacket summary of one such book from that time, from back then, it was called Millennium Meltdown. And it drew directly on the writings of the book of Revelation. This is the book jacket synopsis, it said this. On January 1 in the year 2000, your entire life will change because of the Y2K crisis. This book will show you how to prepare for disrupted electrical power, transportation, bank accounts, and national defense systems. And then the author then explained how that crisis would then usher in the Antichrist coming world government as spoken of in Revelation. And understand, that Y2K book was written... Authoritatively. He said his source was the book of Revelation. How do you argue with Revelation? It must be true. But I think all that book really did was generate fear. Even the title was scary Millennium Meltdown. Oh boy. Be afraid. And if you believed it, you would be. And understand this he was far from alone in his predictions. Here's another writer explain the biblical significance of the new millennium. As soon as the new millennium comes, the Antichrist will come, he wrote, and not long thereafter, the last judgment will follow. And he too wrote with such certainty. But that was written by a pastor named Abel of Fleury in France, interestingly, who wrote it in 996 A.D., just before the start of the last millennium. And he wrote again with certainty based on his understanding of the book of Revelation. Okay, so even with the predictions about COVID and its spiritual significance, let's just remember this. There's nothing new under the sun. This has all been said before about other profound, cataclysmic or global events. Though we are fascinated by this stuff, aren't we? Any of you grow up with all this kind of stuff? You know, in part, really, it's an attempt to make sense of the difficulties, the challenges, the uncertainties that we experience in life. And, and so, understand, in my lifetime, I have heard authoritative voices declare that the Antichrist, who is described in Revelation 13, was President John Kennedy, U.S. Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini. The Pope, crazy, Mikhail Gorbachev, the former leader of the Soviet Union who passed away not long ago, with a birthmark on his forehead who some said was the mark of the beast. Seriously. Or Osama bin Laden, or Bill Gates of Microsoft, or most recently, President Putin of Russia. I mean, one writer I recently read said with just unflinching certainty Desolating earthquakes, sweeping fires, distressing poverty, famines and wars, strange weather patterns, financial instability in many parts of the world, political destruction, and widespread immorality which abounds in these last days obviously indicate the return of our Lord certainly in our lifetime. And many of us might feel that or or wonder about that. But that, again, it was written by William Miller nearly 200 years ago, in 1843. I mean, these types of claims are what prompted the British apologist G.K. Chesterton to write about the book of Revelation. Although St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his biblical commentators. So Clyde, why are you going on about this before we really have even gotten into the book? And really from the start, for one, because I think these types of false claims can deeply wound our credibility as we speak to others about the good news of Jesus. But also I'm speaking about this because I think these kinds of claims and perspectives can undermine our confidence in, and misguide us in our understanding this word from God. I really think we might not need to undo some thinking or perspectives on this book of Revelation that have been very common among we evangelicals in the last 200 years especially. I mean, because the revelation of Jesus Christ to John and the church I don't think it was given to provide like an end times jigsaw puzzle where we can get all the pieces and elements to fit in order. I mean, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it was given to encourage, to give hope to followers of Jesus and to local outposts of the kingdom who were withering in faith and faithfulness and who needed to know there is hope. There is a victorious king who will reign forever. But the charts and graphs and timelines and return of Christ predictions, they just continue to flow. But think, even though Jesus himself tells us so clearly and repeatedly about his second coming, like he does in Acts 1 and like he does in Mark chapter 13, 32, where Jesus said, but concerning that day or hour, the day of his return, no one knows. Can you say those three words with me? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And one pastor in Toronto. (laughs) Even Jesus didn't try to predict the date of his return. So, dude, just consider what Jesus says there in Mark 13. It means that if you had asked Jesus 2,000 years ago, as some did, or if you ask Jesus today... Jesus, is this the end times? Jesus, the very son of God, would say, I don't know. But and you might be thinking, but wait a second, Clyde, didn't, didn't Jesus tell us in Matthew 16 to pay attention to the signs of the times? He did. But he was not talking there. Read the text about future events. He was talking about what was already happening in that ancient day that they just weren't seeing. So do you want to know when Jesus will return? Jesus said, I could come at any moment. I could come like a thief in the night. And that's why, just think about this, that's why every single generation of Christ followers across 2,000 years has rightly believed Jesus could return at any moment. We could be the last generation. And we should rightly live with that kind of expectation. But no generation across 2,000 years ever looked at Scripture or at Revelation and thought, oh, well, Jesus' return is way off. There's way too much it needs to happen before he returns. And that should tell us something. Okay, so in the time remaining, I'd like to focus in on four, I'm going to make them just one-word principles that I think can help guide us as we move into our study of Revelation. Now, this is a bit different than our normal teaching from God's Word, but I think this will be beneficial for us as we move into this book. All right, four principles I want to try to cover here. And the first principle, we're just going to call it this, circles. Circles. I told you, I tried to make it simple. Okay, what do you mean by circles? Well, we've talked about this before many times, and I think it would be good for us to remember the three concentric circles we speak of of our Christian faith and beliefs. And what do you mean by that? Well, we put it this way, if you recall, that at the center of our faith are the elements of the creed. Now, okay, what would fit under creed? Well, the Apostles' Creed, for example. You're seeing a square right there. It's supposed to be a circle. Something weird's happening. It's Revelation. I'll tell you. Okay, now let's read one of the declarations of the creed together. All right? Let's read this. This is from the Apostles' Creed. Read it with me. Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so all authentic followers of Christ across many different traditions globally would agree with those elements of the creed. Jesus is coming again. Okay, that's, cre- that's the heart of our faith. But the next circle or box out is doctrine. Doctrine. Okay, so very important, but not at the heart of our faith. And, and really, on doctrine, there can be many different views among Christ followers on this. For example, when it comes to our understanding of baptism or of communion, Many different understandings in the Christian tradition. Or how the events around Jesus' return will unfold. Many different understandings on this. Some devoted followers of Christ hold to a pre-millennial view. And we'll be talking about what these are. Others hold to a post-millennial view. Others to an amillennial view. And again, if you're wondering, what are those? (laughs) We're going to be looking at those views later in Revelation. Okay, so there's creed, we need to remember. That's the heart of our faith. There's doctrine where there's many different views on this in the Christian faith. And then outside of that, the final box circle is conviction. Conviction. Now, these are areas where Scripture really isn't specific in its guidance. So different followers of Christ can have different convictions on this. For example, how you live out the guidance to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So for us growing up, in the tradition I grew up, you didn't play on the Sabbath on Sunday. You, you didn't get on running shoes or shorts. You, you didn't do that kind of stuff. And then through the week, you didn't dance. And you didn't play with playing cards. Okay, those are matters of conviction. Now, consider again in church history, interestingly, what is the body of Christ most commonly split on? Not typically creedal items. Not on what is really the core of our faith. Splits or divisions typically come from different views on doctrine or on matters of conviction or on different views about unclear elements in the book of Revelation. So we want to keep that principle, the principle of circles in mind, all right? I know you're going to be seeing squares. This is going to be really confusing, but think circles. All right, second principle, pastor, pastor. Okay, four times in this book, the author identifies himself as John. So who is John? Well, the traditional view has been that it was the apostle John, the son of Zebedee. Now, the same John who authored the gospel of John and the three epistles of John, but over more recent centuries, that's really been brought into question. There's been significant debate about which John authored this book. Now, we aren't really going to delve too deeply into the authorship question because it really isn't that critical for understanding the book. Because regardless of which John wrote this book, we need to know and understand two things about the author, as Eugene Peterson explains. And for one, we need to know that John was a pastor. He was a pastor. And that is very important for understanding this book. Peterson puts it this way. There have been times in history when theologians were supposed to inhabit ivory towers and devote themselves to writing impenetrable and ponderous books. But the most important theologians have done their writing and thinking about God in the middle of the world with a connection to and a care for people as a pastor in the thick of the action and sometimes in great distress. So, for example, we have Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing many of his letters to people he loved as a pastor, even from a prison cell. Or we have St. Augustine shepherding his people through the chaotic breakup, really, of the Roman Empire. Or we've got Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who just suffered greatly Leading this really, what was a fugitive existence, he tried to pastor in Nazi Germany. And then we have John, exiled to this hard rock of Patmos, while his friends in Christ were being overwhelmed by Rome's assault. So he seeks to write to them and really unveil to them Jesus. And his words in this letter, as we will be reading it, make it evident John was a pastor. And the fact that he was a pastor, it means some other things to us as well. It means he was not writing cryptic things to them that could only be understood by some distant future generations. I mean, just just get this. Every single word in Revelation, every number, every vision, every song, every symbol, it had an immediate application for the people he was writing to. So that when John writes of tribulation or of Babylon the great or of the great city set on seven hills drunk with the blood of martyrs, not one of the people to whom he was writing would kind of just gaze off into the future and wonder, well, when is that going to happen? Because as we are going to see, tribulation, Babylon the great, a great city on seven hills, all those things were happening Then. And so, this message from John was a message of great hope to them in that ancient day. And I I want us to see that because there there are some who interpret Revelation in such a way that really leads us to think that Revelation just couldn't be understood until now. Have you heard that kind of teaching where I've heard people teach and say that? I mean, we're so glad to be living today because now, oh, now it makes sense. The satellites, computer chips, global warning, crazy storms, wars, plagues, now the book makes sense. Let's just be clear. It made sense then. It made sense then. John, as a pastor, was not giving a word that was obscure and meaningless to his people and really only applied to some far-off future centuries while his people were withering and dying on the vine, because he was a pastor. Circles, pastor. Second principle. And then the third principle, I want you to remember as we go through this book, is simply this, poet. Poet. Because we also know John was a poet. And it's very important to catch this. Because we really need to read much of Revelation as we would poetry. What? Poetry? You saying Revelation isn't true? Not at all. It's just as true as other poetic imagery-rich writings in Scripture, like the book of Psalms, like the Song of Solomon, like Lamentations. And, and remember this, on average, one out of every three chapters in the Bible is Poetry. You know, Eugene Peterson is, in his book on Revelation called Reverse Thunder, and I would recommend that book to all of us to read, even as we're going through this series. He gave this warning about studying Revelation. If Revelation is written by a pastor who is also a poet, we must not read it as if it were an almanac in order to find out when things are going to occur or a chronicle of what has already occurred. What we are given in Revelation, it really is largely as we're going to see pictures. These profound images of our Christian faith and truth. Want a couple of examples of this just kind of quickly? Let Let me give you a couple of them. For one, we're going to see John's use of imagery. It is a poetic use of imagery. For example, flip over to Revelation 19. We're going to be looking at this near the end of the book. Revelation 19 and verse 13, we read this. He, Jesus, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Okay, so Jesus, he's described here clearly as having a sword coming out of his mouth. Okay, well, Jesus literally have a sword coming out of his mouth. If he wanted to, he could. He could. But more likely, John is using the imagery that really we find in other places in Scripture, like Paul uses. When Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, that the sword of the Spirit, what is it? The Word of God. So the sword here, it really represents the declaration and judgments that Christ is going to bring. And we're going to see that kind of poetic imagery throughout this book. Now, another example, we're going to also see the poetic language in John's use of numbers. We're going to see a lot of numbers in this book. For example, the number seven, good number. In that ancient day, the number seven, it was really the number of perfection, of peace, of completeness. And therefore, it was the number of God. So when we see the number seven, In Revelation, it's supposed to point us to God, remind us of God. But we're going to also see another number. We're going to see the number six a lot. And the number six in that day, it was the number of incompleteness. It was really the number of discord, even of defiance against the perfect God. And so if you triple it and make the number six, 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 in Revelation 13, that really refers to defiance of the triune God, however it's expressed. And that number is therefore described as the number of the beast who opposes God. We're going to see a whole lot of the poetic use of numbers, of images, objects, and symbols. Okay, three principles I want us to keep in mind. Circles, pastor, poet, and odd grouping. And then, our fourth and final principle is this. Context. Say the word with me, would you? Context. Okay, and and let me put it this way, and really to paraphrase Dick Lucas on this. We need to take revelation to ancient Asia Minor before we bring it back and apply it to contemporary Calgary. Let me say that again. We need to take revelation to ancient Asia Minor before applying it to contemporary Calgary. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, really, as with any New Testament letter, Revelation was written to a specific group of churches facing specific issues in a specific region for a specific purpose. So before we apply its teaching to our day and setting, we first need to consider what it was saying in its original context. Because I think one of the most common ways that individuals misread this book is by ignoring or failing to see what it is saying to its original readers in the Roman Empire. And they then just skip that ancient context and try to apply Revelation directly to our day. Okay, so as we go through this letter... Get ready. We are going to be talking a lot about what the context of this letter was in John's day in Asia Minor. All right? Four principles for us to keep in mind as we go through this book. Circles, pastor, poet, context. Okay? Okay, so with all that, so what's the point of Revelation? Simply this, I think, as we're going to see throughout this book. The the purpose of Revelation is to bring hope to those who believe and to warn those who do not. So pay attention to this. If, If the main thing this book is bringing you as a follower of Jesus is fear and dread, that's a clue. You're likely misreading Revelation because the main point of Revelation is Regardless of what you are seeing and experiencing around you, regardless of how you are having to wait, Jesus is victorious. He will reign forever because we worship the true king. Amen? That's what we'll see. So before we come to this table of communion to celebrate and receive from our king, can we do this? Because this book is a a letter for us to hear to hear audibly and to see visually in our minds. Can we do this before we come to the table? Will you close your eyes? I want you to read, I want to read to you this passage from Revelation 1. And let the images come to you. Just listen. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And all God's people say, amen. And Father, as we come now to the table, how we thank you, that we come in worship, not of one who died, and this is merely a memorial alone. We come remembering he lives, he reigns. We need that reminder. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters, as we receive this bread and cup, would you cause it to be spiritual food for us, Father? Lead us to receive from Jesus in this meal, for we come in his name. Amen. So I would invite you, friends, in light of the king we worship, to take the cup that you received when you came in, and if you would take off the top portion of bread there. Let me remind you as we receive this, Jesus has freed us from our sins. Amen? So receive from him the body of Christ broken for you. And then with the cup. And again, part of the intent of Jesus giving us the cup is so that we would be reminded that we are waiting for one who will return. He is coming again. And you can rest in that hope because the blood of Christ was poured out for you. Take and drink. Will you pray with me again? Oh, Father, how we thank you for your grace and goodness. And I pray through the feeding of your word, through the feeding of fellowship, of your presence and of the table, I pray, Father, you would nourish us for this week to bring you glory and honor and guide us, we pray, in our lives. And, Father, even as we walk through this week, I pray that truly, Jesus, you would make yourself to us a living Bright reality. This we pray in His incredible name. And again, all God's people say, "Amen, Amen." We stand with me, friends. And well done with that. That was a fire of information. At least it was from my end. And thank you for hanging in there with this. And I encourage you to come back next weekend because next week we go to the island of Patmos. I think you'll want to join in for that. And again, if you are a newcomer or visitor with us, so great to have you here. Please come up and say hello. And I would encourage you to go by the Newcomer Center just out the right as you head out of here uh, to let us know that you're with us. We also have a coupon for a free coffee we want to give you. And, and also invite you to the Newcomer's Lunch we're having tomorrow after 11 o'clock service. So it'll begin around 12, 15. Just let the Newcomer Center know if you want to come to that. And also, as we've been Ryan... There's tables out there if you are seeking to serve, and we need every one of us here serving. I encourage you to stop by those tables out in the Cardo and get information on what opportunities there are, or you can go to our website as well and see them there. But our gathering isn't over. This is a time where we hang out together and move from this place into relationship and fellowship. So let me give this good word from Romans 15 as you head out. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing this week, so that by the power of his Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's walk in that grace. Amen.